At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. That's kind of how ESPN works is that there's this, um, you know, there's no one size rule that fits everybody. And that's sometimes where, where the chaos happens is that they let certain people do certain things. They let other people not do those things. And then you know then your your next thing you know your your respective you know representatives are kind of fighting it out with ESPN's management it's just it's kind of game of thrones is in there to some degree hey everybody this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the sports media podcast my producer is Patrick Antonetti one guest this week it's Jamel Hill she has been on this podcast before, contributing writer for The Atlantic. The host of Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify. The uh, longtime ESPN employee. And for today's purposes, the author of a new memoir, Uphill, a memoir which publishes on October 25th. So we release this podcast the day Jamel Hill's uh, memoir comes out, though we did tape... Uh, the interview a couple days before that um it is a long and i think uh and i hope for you guys a, a really interesting and, and transparent and honest conversation jamel talks about why she wanted to write this book um especially one so personal and raw a lot of discussion on her childhood where addiction was all around her the pain and catharsis about uh, writing intimately about her mother um, her reasons for having an abortion and why she wanted readers to know about it. Um, her The beginnings of her career, including being the only black female sports columnist out of uh, 305 daily newspapers. And then obviously we do a lot on ESPN. She joined ESPN in 2006. And, um, and there was certainly a lot there to cover. So the first part of the conversation is about uh, Jamel's sort of upbringing and what she experienced, and then we shift to ESPN, and um, and there's a lot there. I won't uh, try to preview it all here. 
but I think you will find it very, very interesting, particularly those of you who are into sports media. So uh, more than an hour with Jamel Hill, the author of Uphill, a memoir, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, I'm excited to have this conversation. Jamel Hill has been on this podcast before. She's been on my Sports Illustrated podcast before. I've known her for a long time. She has quite the bio. We'll try to condense it a little bit just for current purposes. She's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, where she covers the intersection of sports, race, politics, and culture. She's the host of Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify. Speaking of podcasts, she's the creator and host of a podcast network that will debut in November for Spotify. That's called the Unbothered Network, so check that out, the Unbothered Network. She obviously worked for ESPN for many years, former co-host of ESPN Sports Center, his and hers, won some Emmy Awards there. Newspaper background includes the Detroit Free Press, Orlando Sentinel. She's a proud graduate of Mich- Michigan State University. She's here today to talk about her memoir. The title of that book is Uphill, a memoir. It is, uh, it is a really, really interesting exploration into Jamel's life. And you'll probably learn in this podcast some things that you did not know about Jamel Hill, particularly her childhood. And I am pleased to be joined by Jamel Hill. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, um, you know, especially as a, a multi-time guest. So uh, I'm glad that I keep producing things that you uh, want to ask me about. <laughs> yeah, you've moved it. You've morphed into a, a much uh, much higher uh, area code, Jamel. So I'm glad you're slumming still on this podcast. It's very nice of you. All right. So, I mean, I hate to start with the cliche NPR question, but I'm going to do it anyway. So why did you want to write this book? especially one that's so personal and so raw, and we'll get into some of the things that are personal and raw. To be truthful, uh, Richard, I actually didn't want to write this memoir. This was not the book that I had on my vision board. I did not want to do a memoir. I did not um, want to spend 200-plus pages. In this case, I think the book rounds out at 240, talking about myself, and not necessarily because I didn't think I was interesting enough, but I my long-held desire has been to be a fiction writer, not to really not write nonfiction and, I, and write about myself. It's why I never did a book with an athlete. I mean, that it would have to have been a really, really, really compelling athlete for me to want to partner with them and, and maybe tell their life story. But um, yeah, no, this was not the book that I had in, in mind. And, and to be even more candid, what really changed my mind about it was actually the money. It wasn't really because I had some... Um, you know, kind of a grand metamorphosis. Um, it, yeah, I mean, the my, my literary agent, uh, David Larabelle over at CAA, he, you know, this is back in 2019. I mean, he told me there was just a tremendous appetite for me to tell my story. And that even if I wanted to write fiction long term, it would be crazy for me not to take this entry point uh, into the literary world so that I could... Um, you know, uh, maybe one day fulfill that dream of mine of writing fiction. And as he predicted, the book went to auction. And here I am, <laughs> three years later with a, a book about to hit the shelves. But all that being said, financial reasons aside, I'm, I'm really glad that I did it. 
you know, as you mentioned, this is an extremely personal memoir. I wanted to be as transparent and as honest as possible, which is really the only way I kind of know how to be. So it matches up and aligns with who I am as a person. So going through this process, unpacking some things, unlocking some doors that I honestly I closed for quite a long time was a good experience. At times it was a gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching experience, an exhaustive, emotionally exhaustive experience. But being now on the other side of it, I, I just, I can't be more excited and pleased that I, I was able to go through this very different and unique journey as a part of my overall career. I, listen, I appreciate the candidness. Why'd you do it? I did it for the money. That that's You don't often hear transparency and... Uh, and I appreciate that. I obviously know, having read the book, that you know the the process of it becomes far more than um, an exercise in in financial reward. So you put your, and we're going to get to the ESPN part later in this, just so people know. I want to sort of hit on Jamel's early years, and then we'll go to the um, the quote unquote more sports media part. You um you put your entire entire childhood out there. Uh, your mother was a heroin addict. Your father was a heroin addict. You write that your father didn't get clean until you were maybe seven or eight years old. And once he did and wanted to resume a relationship, he was practically a stranger to you. There's so much in this book about your mom and about her journey uh, trying to get clean. The These are things that um, obviously happen across the world, happen across America. But most people don't put it out there. Most people don't talk about it. Most people don't make it public. Was it painful or cathartic or both to write about? some of the things you saw as a child? It was probably both. Um, you know, there were stories, there are stories that are in this book that my mother told me about things she did when she was, uh, you know, under, you know, kind of under the influence of addiction that I, I didn't even know she did. <laughs> and I, I was unaware that was going on. There were a lot of things I certainly witnessed firsthand, uh, but there were other things that I had no idea of what she had overcome. Uh, well, my father was a little different because we didn't grow up in, in the same house as I write about. You know, we were estranged for a while as he dealt with his addiction. Um, you know, my mother did heroin, uh, I guess, just for a point of a clarification at, at different points. But, you know, she I mean, she did, she experimented with a, a few different drugs, but her main um, sort of drug of choice was 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 pain pills and so you know Vicodin Oxycontin obviously we know now what a prevalent issue that is right now in America dealing with the opioid crisis so that was sort of the main fixture for my mother more so than um, some of the other things that she kind of dabbled with um, but uh, only went so far with uh, so to speak but yeah I mean it's it, when I said a moment ago about unpacking things or unlocking doors. These are things that I had kind of dealt with a long time ago. I've forgiven both of my parents, um, you know, for, I guess, their their shortcomings. And what happens, I think, inevitably for anybody is that you, as you experience the world, as your worldview widens, uh, you start to understand your parents a little bit better as you ask them questions about the life that they led. Uh, you develop a level of empathy. So while I went through points of anger with both of them, uh, we eventually got to a really good place where anger was no longer sort of a part of the equation, so to speak. So yes, it was it was not easy to write about um, some of these moments. And with my mother in particular, to have to ask her about what were 
frankly, the worst moments of her life. And I, I, I did the conversation in, in, in waves. And so, you know, we talked about more happy stuff and fun stuff and other and better memories. And then I kind of tried to save the tough stuff for last because I knew that that would, um, you know, she would have to be unfortunately in a position where she had to relive some of these awful moments that she experienced. Did you like literally have a tape recorder in front of her and just like tape these conversations? Is that how you did it? No, we were over the phone because the height of the, most of this book I wrote during COVID. And um, so we weren't we weren't seeing each other in person. And my mother is uh, immunocompromised. So I could not do really anything with her in, per- in person. So we just have these like two hour phone calls <laughs> where wow. she would be telling me things and. Uh, I'd be, you know, I'm still a little old school. I write things down. And, and and it wasn't really about verbatim necessarily. It was just about understanding the tone, the the color of what she was going through, trying to in some ways put myself in her position to understand what her, you know, mentality was. So hearing her tell some of these stories was, uh, you know, it, it was difficult for her. And it was as, you know, her child, it was difficult for me to hear. I want to ask you one more thing about your family and, and addiction, if I can. Um, you mentioned you had a stepfather, James, who you really loved. He he ultimately died of AIDS-related complications. You wrote that your grandmother drank almost every night. Um, so how, I mean, obviously the answer is it did. I, I guess I'm trying to get to the how. How did addiction shape who you are, or at least seeing how addiction sort of ran in your family? And then you seem to break the cycle of this. Um you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. And maybe you, you had to go through your own journey when it came to the pills or alcohol or something like that. But, um, you know, addiction, at least when you were young, Jamel, it, it, it's, it seemed to be such a central point of your childhood. Um, well, uh, for me, uh, my parents, and I guess my grandmother by extension, watching them and some of the choices they made and some of the consequences they had to deal with had the opposite effect. It, I, I've never done hard drugs in my life. I mean, I smoked a little weed in college and <laughs> that, that's it, you know, and, um, you know, I think as an adult, I had like a gummy or two here and there, but like, <laughs> I, I've never, you know, I've never, that's never been my scene. I've never surrounded myself with those kind of people. I don't have friends who do that. Um, other than smoke weed, which again, I'm not really putting in this category. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so no, I was never on the scene in the same way that my mother was or that my father was. And even though I grew up in some of the same circumstances from a financial standpoint, you know, my mother grew up poor, you know, we struggled a lot when I was growing up. My father, um, his family, they struggled a, a lot as well. Obviously we all grew up in, in inner city, uh, Detroit. And so the same influences were around me, but the one thing I know this may sound weird to people who listen, but maybe the people who are, you know, the child of addicts or have dealt with the addiction themselves can maybe understand this. Even though my mother was dealing with addiction, she still could parent. And by that is I had to still go to school every day. I had, you know, she expected me to get good grades. She, whatever, that's why one of the chapters in there, I named it drunk, drugged, or indifferent. Cause my mother used to tell me all the time, drunk, drugged, or indifferent, you going to school, this is the expectation. This is the standard that I have set. So just because the adults in my life were dealing with their issues, they never allowed me to use their issues as an excuse not to take care of business. And so 
that's a big reason why I had that attitude of I'm not going to make some of the choices that they make. And, you know, of course, in college and now as an adult, you know, I drink, but like I'm very aware of what the cycle and patterns of addiction are in my own family and and I'm cognizant of that. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it was, there's, I guess, you know, one or two ways you can learn. You can learn by experience what not to do, or you can actually take heed to seeing how some things have destroyed people's lives and, and do the opposite. So thankfully, I've never really had to deal with the dark paths that, that they had to deal with. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, it's sort of your story there shows the power of compartmentalizing, which your mom was able to do, at least in terms of your schooling, you know, away from her personal life. And obviously people do that every day. Um, I want to ask one more um, sort of question about uh, something that you wrote about that's incredibly personal. Um, you wrote candidly about your abortion, uh, what happened, your reasons for it, how you thought about it then, how you think about it now. This is obviously a massive topic in the United States, given Roe and the removal of what was said to be settled law. It's a flashpoint for this country right now. Um, Why was it important for you um, to let readers of your memoir know uh, about this? Well, it was always the plan. um, And I uh, what I when I first began writing this this memoir, you know, back in 2019, while uh, to me, even though a lot of us consider Roe v. Wade to be, you know, codified law and that this was something that I, I too did not imagine would be undone in my lifetime. But I was aware of the fact that if there was a window or sliver of opportunity, it, it will be gone and that there will be many states that have done exactly what we've seen and passed bans and stricter abortion laws in their own states. And so I wanted to write about it because it is a part of my story because my life would have been completely different had I decided not to terminate that pregnancy. And I also wanted to put a different, uh, I wanted to, to spin the conversation about abortion forward a little bit, you know, especially now that we're in the point that the inflection point we are with abortion in this country, there's a lot of conversation that's trauma related around abortion. You know, obviously women who, are suffering, um, you know, dangerous pregnancies and are sometimes, you know, termination is the only option. Women who have been raped, victims of incest or, you know, or young children, you know, to to be honest. So we've seen how that conversation has has blossomed and developed. And that's definitely important piece of it. But then there's this other piece where, as I write about in the book, is that, you know, I'm in my mid 20s at that point. While I was in a bit of a tumultuous relationship, it was not an abusive relationship. Um, You know, we were just under the normal kind of relationship stress that relationships go under. Uh, I would have had the support of my family. I would have had the support of his family and his support as well. I just didn't want, want a child. And I think it's okay if women make that decision as well. And one of the surprising parts is after I wrote the adapted piece of this for the Atlantic because I wrote it when obviously uh, as soon as uh, the decision Supreme Court made the decision um, uh, with Rob uh, with Roe versus Wade or the Dobbs decision as it's called uh, after this piece published um, one thing that was really interesting and and you know Richard this will really hit home with you given that you cover sports media the number of women in sports media who reached out to me who said that 
they had done the same thing, I was really astounded by. And that's that's the one thing I think people need to understand about this. Like, I guarantee you there's somebody in your immediate circle who has either had an abortion or has paid for an abortion. And so for people to, um, I sort of felt like the layers of shame needed to be removed from this conversation because the women who make those decisions for a variety of reasons, you know, from what I heard uh, in, you know, with people in the industry, be it that they were worried about what it would, what a baby might do to their career path, too young, not in a good relationship, um, you know, one that was of the abusive variety and didn't want to bring uh, a child into that kind of dynamic. It was a number of reasons. And so I think removing the shame is very key to people understanding that this is women's health care and it's our right to do what we want with our bodies. I appreciate that answer, Jamel. And um, I, I think you're done. I mean, I, you know, without sort of giving anything away, obviously prior to me being married, you know, I had girlfriends that early on in our relationship told me that they had an abortion. And so I think people would be very surprised if that if such transparency existed for everyone, um, you know, how much that has uh, that has happened, regardless of how you feel about it, just the fact how much that's happened. I, there's not um, it's not the easiest way to sort of segue out of this, uh, but I will try my best to sort of move to your career. There was a really good um it's a really good sentence you had in here. Is I, I felt like it sort of really captured in many ways sort of your essence here in the book. And then you said, my default is to pour all of my energy into my career. It's one of the few things that I've been able to count on to be my safe haven. People have let me down. My career never has. And so I take that as like you knew very, very early on like that you were going to be someone who was going to throw themselves into work. And it seems very clear, certainly, you know, when you got to Michigan State, it seemed very clear that you know, writing, sports journalism, sports writing was going to be, you know, like the path that you went on. I know you're, you you said your dream was to work for Sports Illustrated. You've ultimately ended at ESPN. But you've, all, for lack of, it's me filibustering here, but you've always been a careerist, right? At some point, you must have known that, like, what I do professionally is going to define me. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of odd is that it was, definition is a, is an interesting word. There's part of me that hears you say that and sort of shrinks a little bit, like define me. Um, but at the same time, I do think that my career, and I know this will probably sound kind of odd to people, um, is that my career was a bit of a crutch. And um, in the sense of that, much like you just pointed out how I wrote about it, is that I, I knew that it was something I could depend on. I had all these un, other unreliable forces in my life, but I knew that if I got a certain number of internships, a certain number of clips, if I you know, uh, covered certain beats, teams wrote certain stories, had certain journalistic experiences, that would all set me up on a path to success. You know, what I was really craving and reaching for was stability because so much of my childhood was unstable and I did not want my adult life to be anything like that I wanted to be able to have certain pillars that I could count on and journalism was a big pillar you know I guess as I'm thinking about how you frame the question um, you know defining is probably a good word because to some extension and I don't know if I'm overstating this and I certainly don't want to speak for every journalist but what we do and the reasons that we pursue this is very much a, an, an extension of who we are. Only in the sense of, uh, I, I do think journalists do have um, 
a, you know, thirst for truth, fairness, accuracy, all those things that kind of are the core beliefs of our profession. Journalists are just built a certain way. Most of them are, and especially the good ones are. And finding myself kind of drawn to this because of the storytelling, the ability to shape context, to shape stories, and uh, to chronicle very important moments, and even to capture the theater of what sports represents, the competition, the the will, the grittiness, all the kind of corny attributes that we ascribe to sports. Those are very important to me. And in many ways, my pursuit of sports journalism in particular was a reflection of what sports meant to me, especially as a young adult. All kinds of studies are done. And as someone who's a product of this, I obviously believe in them about the positive impact that sports has on um, girls when it comes to body image, leadership, teamwork. All those things were very appealing to me about sports and it stoked a curiosity in me in terms of this being something that I wanted to cover for the rest of my life. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was single-mindedly in pursuit of journalism excellence, if you will. I didn't always know what shape that would take, <laughs> but especially early on in my career, you know, I had a very definitive goal. It was like I wanted to write long-form stories for Sports Illustrated. That was my dream, to be able to capture athletes and the sports world in, in such an eloquent way and have the time and space to do that was what every kind of young writer wanted. I mean, at that time, I thought I'd be making it big if I made $50,000 a year. So I never came into this profession with any expectation that I would make real money. Never was a thought. I was content to be a broke storyteller who might eventually one day retire to a log cabin somewhere and write a bunch of fiction novels. That was sort of the vision I had for myself. You um, you worked at the Detroit Free Press. You worked at the Orlando Sentinel. In Orlando, you became a sports columnist. This is right before you went to ESPN. You write in the book, um, there were, I think this is when you're at Orlando, there were 305 daily newspapers in the country at the time, and I was the only black female sports columnist, according to a study by the Associated Press Sports Editors. I wasn't flattered by that. I was embarrassed. Um, obviously, as a white male in the business, when I see white faces, particularly male faces all around me, I never felt like an other or an outsider ever. Man, that stat, <laughs> you might as well put like a spotlight on you, basically. You really can't sort of... Uh, not be in it um for you especially prior to espn i mean you're always aware right that you're the only black female sports columnist in the country like how could you not be right you're, it, yeah you're, i mean it's it's pretty hard not to because you know you go in locker rooms or you're just in media scrums you go cover events and games and you're the only face and it may be a couple other faces. I mean, especially as a black woman, certainly there are certain beats where, you know, I would see obviously other black men, but largely it was be just you. And so that's a very isolating feeling to have about, um, you know, about the profession that you're in. Cause you, I certainly did. I would wonder all the time, like, is it always going to look like this? Like, isn't at some point this supposed to get better? And I can say, unfortunately, you know, it's disheartening that it, it didn't change that much. And, um, you know, at least in the in the writing world, the TV world was a, a little bit different. But in the writing world, it, it never really changed. And when I got my column at 28, there was uh, 
people were very surprised. I mean, one, nobody had ever heard of me. <laughs> so I think that had a lot to do with it. And two, when you add in the race and gender dynamic, there was this sort of open wondering about, well, how did she get this job? And uh, you, it, it's a unfortunate burden you have to carry, uh, you know, when you're a person of color, when you're black, especially, is that whatever stop you you go on, and especially if you're in the corporate mainstream industries, and, and in, in our case, in traditional corporate media, you're in a lot of very white spaces. And there's inevitably this burden that you feel, or I don't even know if it's the sixth sense, that people are always wondering how you got your job. And by wondering, I mean wondering if you're qualified enough to have it. And that's why one of the incidents I write about in the book is about how another beat writer for a competing outlet, you know, told me to my face that it was hard for him as a white guy to get a job and that it was going to be easier for me because I was a black woman. And I'm, and everybody in that room was a white dude. And I'm like, I should be the one saying this, not you. And, but that's a feeling that you have throughout your career. And it, it, it always persists is that everybody is looking at you like you're the token hire, the diversity hire. You didn't really earn your way there. And it is frustrating. And early on in your career, it could be kind of debilitating. And so um, it was something I've unfortunately had to deal with at every stop. Um, but as I got more experience and, and more savvy in the business and, and more confident, really, uh, you know, you just kind of learn to kind of shut off the negativity and the whispers and that sort of thing. You um you joined ESPN in November 2006. You go from having a column that's read by, you know, ten, thousands or tens of thousands of readers depending on I guess what the Sentinel had at the time to millions of readers. Um at the, I want to ask you like sort of if you were ready for that and you sort of talk about this in your book, but you know, one of the interesting and this is very sort of inside media baseball now, sort of the you know, the the world that I or occupied far more uh, back then, Jamel. I'm, I'm starting to I'm starting to fade. I'm getting, I'm, clearly, God's <laughs> giving me a sign. Get out of Dodge. But the um, when you were at ESPN, the the big lead, which was a pretty relatively new blog back then, reported you had signed a two year, four hundred thousand dollar contract to work at ESPN. In the book, for the first time, you say you can finally talk about it. That's not true at all. You signed for one hundred twenty thousand dollars per year and would receive a ten thousand dollar bump in salary in every year of the deal. And then you said your contract eventually maxed out in your fourth year and final year of that particular contract at $160,000. The reason why I went, I mentioned the money and the start of this is because I remember this, not only were you, you know, like, Oh wow, she's heading to ESPN to write uh, for page two. But then like when the salary thing comes out, you clearly, I'm sure had a lot of people jealous in the business. Like, you know, why is this 28, 29 year old woman getting this kind of, money um what was what were those early days like at espn from one being read by so many more people and then two there's people in the industry i'm sure who are like whispering behind your back you know what the hell i mean it sucks that people in the industry are jealous of money but the reality is this happens yeah i mean because i I, you know i guess some 10 years later i'm able to (laughs) 10 plus years later i'm actually finally able to give it to some context because what people didn't understand also is that that was an independent contractor um contract so espn wasn't paying for my health benefits at all so that 120 is like a straight 120 where you know my health benefits 
you know, other things. Everything has to come out of that. And I think when I left the Sentinel, I was making 80, 80 or 85. I think that's what it was. But I had benefits. I had 401k. I had all that stuff. All that stuff went away. Once once I got to ESPN, I jumped to ESPN because it's ESPN. And even though I never really had any strong desire to work there, you know, at that point, people, there was a lot of anxiety in the newspaper business about the right. retracting yep. ad revenue. Yeah, you remember those times. And yeah, plus I uh, think a big a big recession, uh, like uh, it was right there. The time too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah, it was it was right there. And so all of those things were going on. So to me, the smart play was to go to ESPN and not have to deal with the anxieties happening in newspapers. But it was tough because I'd never had my salary ever reported on before, and the big league at the time. You know, I I would imagine the bulk of people who read it, or at least a considerable point of people, considerable portion of people who read it were industry people. So then you have all of your colleagues finding out you're making this much money. When that story dropped, we I had not signed my contract. My manager at the time and ESPN were still negotiating. And so he was livid because... It then it looks like he's leaking stuff to the big league, which he never heard of. And I was, you know, I was familiar with, but I, I mean, I would have just sabotaged my entire negotiations by ever telling them that I was interviewing there. And so um, it was a very anxiety real riddle point for me, but it was just one of those indications like this is a different level that you're dealing with where your salary is, is going to be bantered about maybe even reported on and then for the salary to be wrong uh, you know I, I guess you could say maybe six in one hand half dozen in the other did it work for me that people thought from a from a industry perception um, standpoint you know from executives did it work for me that other people thought I was making that much money I don't know that it did I don't know that it didn't but it did create I could sense animosity might be too strong but it definitely created an even higher sense of that wait a minute, you paying her what? I mean, and as I note in the book, there were people openly writing that, okay? And saying like, I cannot believe that this person who I've never heard of is coming in essentially off the street and making $200,000 uh, a year. On top of the fact that my first editor-in-chief at ESPN.com, I had a strong sense. I mean, he did not want me there. You know, it was kind of a, a bit of a forced hire because Keith Cleanscales, uh, he was the one who scouted me. He was the one who, you know, brought me to Bristol and set me up on a on an interview. And he kind of used his weight as a VP because he felt like uh, page two in particular needed to be even more diverse. They needed to represent culture. I mean, he was kind of ahead of his time in terms of thinking that uh, he you know, he was looking at it like, hey, we need somebody who can write, who understands this merge of culture happening between sports and and race and gender and all those things. And so for him, you know, that was the most important thing. And he was not afraid to use his title to make sure that it happened, which, of course, if you're the person running page two and ESPN dot com, you don't really appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, my first uh, boss at ESPN was a little frosty to me at first. So I'm dealing with the pressure of being at a new place. Everybody knows my salary. So the stakes are really high. And if I fail or flame out, everybody's just going to be like, see, I told you. So I had to live with that for a while until I just 
kind of just decided, screw it. I mean, these people are going to think that anyway. So why am I going to try to curb myself for somebody else's limited expectations of me? Yeah, that's a good good for you to sort of get there. All right, before we sort of head to um, uh, 2016 and, uh, you know, Trump, et cetera, uh, you're, you're right. You start your career as a writer for ESPN, and then eventually at some point – you recognize either in terms of the financial opportunities that exist there. I mean, ultimately, it's a television company, let's be honest. Uh, or the fact that maybe you're just, you know, you're feeling a little written out. You start morphing to the TV side. And people forget about this. You were a sideline reporter for a year, which is really fascinating to me, sort of thinking in hindsight. And you called that the most difficult job um, you ever had at ESPN. So, between, you know, from like 20, from like, you know, whatever, 2008 to like, you know, 2015 or so, whatever the time frame is, you're, I mean, in your mind, do you sort of, you're like, if I'm going to stick around at this place, like I got to become a multimedia kind of player as opposed to just a writer? Uh, definitely, because you, you, we see what happened with page two. Page two kind of went away. Then they tried to, I don't know if you remember these days, then they tried to do a straight commentary page where all the columnists, people could go there and on one rail, you can read whoever you wanted to read. And they, the columnists, parts started getting phased out. I mean, that it went from there to like phasing them out. And the, the only way as a writer you really were going to survive is if you covered something specific. Like if I covered specifically the NBA or the NFL or, you know, any specific sport, then I, I think the, the safety of my job would have been fine. But they seem to have less and less of an appetite for commentary. And based on what we were told is that creating those niche pages where people could come and, and get opinion weren't really driving traffic. And that's why it kind of went away. So the writing was starting to be on the wall, I guess pun intended, that commentary had a very limited lifespan uh, at ESPN. And so seeing that and also seeing how television was becoming a wider lane for me and um, I just kind of had to make a hard pivot that was a big reason why I did sideline reporting was I was trying to find a home because uh the floating thing around tv was only gonna work so long too I mean that was not something I could build a future around uh, I mean I, I could have cobbled together certainly a few more years but I was just putting myself in sort of ESPN shoes like at some point they're gonna look up and say okay we're only gonna pay you so much money because this is what this is the limited nature of your job so I'm thinking you know, how else can I kind of expand my steel, my ceiling? And the biggest way to do that, I thought at the time, was sideline reporting, which was like a huge mistake. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, uh, as I kind of got more experience doing commentary, you know, shows like The Sports Reporters and The Round the Horn, then I started trying to host a little bit more because I knew that was another way and uh, that I could kind of expand what that ceiling would look like for me at ESPN. And finally, it was pretty apparent around 2013, after I did sidelining reporting, the only way I had any real future at ESPN, or continued future, I should say, is that I had to start doing daily television on some kind of platform. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right. So people know that, like, if you read Jamel's book, there's there's a I can't like I'd have to spend like five hours to sort of do 2016 and 2017 in her ESPN career from getting SportsCenter uh, and ultimately with Michael Smith, her longtime friend and what that meant. She, obviously, they had a very successful partnership with his and hers uh, prior to that. They actually give them a lot of credit. They basically forged their way into starting a podcast. Um uh, and almost had to prove, not almost, they had to have a proof of concept to ESPN that this would work. So eventually they become the anchors of Sports Center. Uh, you know, no need to litigate just sort of what a lot of they had, what a lot of people thought of that show. Uh, I cannot remember a day, I think I've tweeted this many times on <laughs> Twitter back then, where people were not asking you, Jamel, about the viewership of Sports Center's 6 p.m. Uh, broadcast. By the way, in the last four years, I haven't had one. So that'll tell you something right there, um, and so we get to um, we get to 2016, and then we get to 2017. In September of 2017, you tweeted Donald Trump is a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. He's unqualified and unfit to be president. He is not a leader, and if he were not white, he would have never been elected. Um, that tweet obviously sort of changes the course of your life and professional life. Eventually, you mention um, a couple weeks later. That you're not suspended, by the way, I should be clear for the Trump tweet, but you later are suspended for two weeks without pay after you tweet about Jerry Jones and the um, Cowboys in a way that players can sort of show empowerment and fans, right, can show empowerment to uh, if they're upset with the NFL. Um, rather than sort of ask you a direct question, it's sort of more of a thought exercise. Um, when you look back at that time, that specific time with those tweets and Trump eventually tweets about you. Um, how, what has hindsight done in terms of your memory on this? How do you look at it now, perhaps, that you could not look, could not have looked at it when you're in the middle of this vortex? Well, I think, uh, well, it, it's a couple of things. One, I, I, I don't regret <laughs> tweeting any of that. <laughs> I mean, even the, the tweet that actually got me suspended. Um, and... I, more mostly the word that comes to mind is gratitude. And I, I think I, I appreciate going through that so much more now, obviously, because I'm not in the center of the storm because it, it engineered some necessary life changes for me. I wasn't happy on sports center uh, as I, you know, write about, and I think you and I have discussed before and it, it showed me that, it, or it, it it eased the pathway for me to think about what my life outside of ESPN or after ESPN would look like. And I don't think I had given that enough serious thought before. I was thinking very traditionally about what that life was going to look like. And I thought it wasn't going to be a reality until about 2021 or 2022. So I had to speed up the timetable. And I'm glad that I did because there's a lot you can get accomplished under a different sense of urgency, I have become sort of complacent in my career, just in the sense of like, I, you know, ESPN is the longest job I've ever had. I mean, I was there 12 years. And so just with the, the mechanisms of how ESPN works, you do become a little complacent, especially if you get to a point like Sports Center where you're like, okay, this is what I do every day, the six o'clock Sports Center. And even with all the turmoil going on with the show, 
it's it sort of it was it's a very plotted path that you have making some good money. You know, this is kind of what life is. And so it forced me to be, get creative within my career and consider what my next phase was going to be, because I didn't really have a shape of what that looked like. So more than anything, I think it was a great awakening for me, uh, not only understanding uh, the landscape we were in in the country, but also for as much as I learned and as many lessons as I had in in corporate politics, if you will, that was a different kind of exercise. And so it also very much stoked the desire in me to never be in that situation again, where I have to, I mean, of course, I work with major partners now, Spotify being one, but it's different, you know, and I was setting a standard for what I wouldn't be able to do going forward is that I cannot work for entities that don't allow me to be me. I have to have autonomy. I have to have some level um, or strong level of creative input. It's not going to work otherwise. And I saw the dangers of what happened when you compromise on those things and I can never go back there. So for me, this was a great awakening in my career. So I, Ultimately, I'm sort of grateful for the experience overall. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, so a couple things here. Um, People who don't know this should sort of note that Jamel was not suspended for uh, her comments about Donald Trump. She's suspended for this tweet. Um, There's a guy in the middle of a conversation with her is mentioning some sponsors at or advertisers of the Cowboys, I believe. And this guy, just some, a follower of hers, mentions AT&T, Bank of America, Ford Motor Company, et cetera. Jamel Hill says, this play always works. Change happens when advertisers are impacted. If you feel strongly about JJ's statement, JJ being Jerry Jones, boycott his advertisers. That's ultimately why you were suspended. Um, your employer was in business with the NFL. It's interesting that you have, Jamel, in uh, years since said that you would not do that again. And you understood where they were coming from. I think to me... Quite frankly, that's a horseshit reason or a horseshit reason to have suspended you. I mean, you're uh, you're stating something that's been a pretty successful uh, strategy of uh, activists and civil rights people. And for I mean, whatever, like this, you know, wasn't even that controversial. Like this is how you impact change. You 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 put pressure on advertisers. But uh, but I get it. You know, ESPN was a partner in the NFL and they did that. Now, I'm setting that up just so the audience knows this because I want to read something you wrote from your book. When Trump uh, tweeted about you, President of the United States tweeting about a, 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 a sports uh, a journalist, sports anchor, uh, I immediately laughed. How absurd and pathetic that the President of the United States cared about the tweets and suspension of a sports anchor. I didn't care what Trump thought of me. I already thought so little of him. The journalism nerd in me found his tweeting about me kind of cool. As a journalist, you live for the day when you rattle those in power. Trump didn't hurt me, but ESPN's lack of a response did. A government official had come after one of its employees and nothing happened. ESPN silence made it seem like the company stood with the president during my 11 years there. That was the most disappointed I had ever been with ESPN. It was at that 
it was then that I realized my time in ESPN had come to an end. So ba- I always sort of thought this too in reporting about you. That was the moment, right? When they didn't really respond, where you, you had to know at some point, like, I don't know when it's going to be, but I'm eventually leaving this company. They didn't have my back. Yeah, because, you know, I had been through, not with myself personally, but uh, thankfully, you know, I'd worked at a, a few newspapers. And you uh, you know what happens when you challenge City Hall, so to speak. I've Correct. seen journalists, yeah, I'd seen journalists of uh, friends of mine who had, you know, government officials, mayors, governors, you know, uh, legislators come after them because of things that they wrote. And it was always the position of the paper that they were going to stand by their people. You know, and so when there was no response, even internally from ESPN, when there was no response from them, I was just like, our time is done because that's sort of the level of disappointment you just don't get over overnight. And even though Skipper did apologize for that and he said that that was probably his only regret about the situation is that he should have said something and he didn't. And so it left me with the feeling of, our relationship, not mine with Skipper, but with this company, our relationship is never going to be the same. And on top of that, just, you know, from a practical standpoint, there was nothing else I wanted to do there either. But that was the moment to me. That was the fork in the road where I was just like, I think we're kind of, I think we've outlived our relationship at this point. It's 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 run its full course. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, I, I sort of looked it up for this conversation. Uh and by the way, I recommend people actually deleting all their old tweets. There's no value in having them up there. I just happen to be an idiot and not doing that. September 15th, 2017, I wrote, this would be the day for ESPN to come out and simply say, Jamel Hill is one of ours and not going anywhere. And later in that same day, I put it in quotes and I, you know, under John Skipper, and I said, that would be my memo today, but I'm not management. So I agree with you. Even, even, even if they didn't sort of really believe it corporately, I think you had to, I think you have to defend your employee then you're correct i think most newspapers would all right um when it comes to your exit at um at espn um you you eventually meet with uh connor shell who's sort of in the interim between like heading content in some ways between john skipper and and uh, jimmy pataro and at this point his primary concern as you write is salary because as a writer and a just a part-time tv personality you're being in your words, grossly overpaid. Um, there's management all around, and you mentioned people by name, Norby Williamson and Dave Roberts, who basically want you off, wanted you off SportsCenter, didn't want you to be part of that. So at this point in your ESPN tenure, Jamel, are we really just talking about, like, what kind of exit can I get in terms of where I get as much money as I can from these guys, and I just sort of cut it clean? How did you, uh, how did you approach that? Well, the approach was simple. Once once they let me off SportsCenter, um, which I didn't I didn't know really what to expect with that because I realized what I wanted to do was basically go back to the old job before I started doing TV every day. <laughs> and given how much money I was making at that point, I knew that they were going to be very dissatisfied with that option. But I also knew that they kind of wanted the headlines to stop. As long as I was a presence on SportsCenter, the Breitbarts, the Fox Newses, they were going to be hounding me about everything. And I, I honestly didn't want to live in that space where everything I said, everything I tweeted would become a new segment for them on some of their programming. And um, so I knew that they at least had a motivation for me not to do the show, but they knew what was in my contract. I mean, I essentially had the equivalent of an athlete's no trade clause 
and that uh, we were guaranteed Sports Center for three years at 6 p.m. And so the only way that was coming out of there is if we wanted it out of there. So I that this is why I was always amused by people who said that they kicked me off Sports Center. I was like, no, no, no. The only way this would have happened, unless they were, you know, really wanting maybe a legal fight or for things to get really contentious would be if I said and came to them and said, Hey, I want out of this. And so, and that's exactly what I did. I mean, I, I, I didn't want to be on the show anymore. Um, I thought Norby and Dave had much different plans for what they wanted sports center to be. It was not the sports center we signed up to do. And to me, that was that, I mean, there was, we were at a permanent impasse. And so uh, when I approached Connor about, getting off of there you know it just took him a couple days once he went back to you know other key members of management and they agreed it was a good idea now once that happened then I knew it was going to come a point where there was going to be an entryway for me to be able to leave the company altogether which is what I ultimately wanted and um you know, I, I I thought that that time would actually come a little later because at that point I was only I was entering my second year of the deal because uh, 2017 is when the deal started. I think it was February 2017. And so this is 2018. And so, I, you know, when you're one year into a four year, like <laughs> typically, as you know, the negotiation has to be much closer to when your time <laughs> is up. Usually. Right. 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 Usually. I mean, not in every case, but usually. So I'm thinking I probably have to do another year there. But that opportunity actually came the summer of 2018 where I met with Jimmy Pataro and, and Connor Schell, uh at the ESPYs or shortly after uh, the ESPYs. It was that same week. And we discussed other other options. And one of the options that I put on the table was, well, you know, is this a relationship we should be trying to have anyway? And they were open to it. Um, I have a feeling it, some breakups are like this where it, it's on the other person's mind, but you have to be the first to say it. And that's kind of what that was. Right. As you write in your book, you were the first to say it. So I have a couple more ESPN things here. Uh, sort of going to jump around. I probably could have done a better job chronologically. Uh, when you um, when you signed your sports center deal, you and Mike signed your sports center deal, as you mentioned, in 2017, this was essentially life-changing money for you guys, it, right? Uh, very much so. I mean, we're talking. Um, I think the contract was about ten million. I think that was about what it was. And so over four, over four years, right? Over, so for over four years, yeah. Right. So for somebody who's making fifty five thousand dollars at the Detroit Free Press, this is like monopoly, basically, right? <laughs> yeah, at that point, because it, you know, I think it was like two, 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 five, two, five. I think that's what it was. Nice. And uh, yeah, and it, I mean, it it was. I mean, listen. Um, I give ESPN a, a, a ton of credit because, you know, there were other whispers of, of other people being interested in us. I think I wrote about how FS1 was was kind of kicking the tires on us and trying to have some back channel conversations. But at least figures that came my way, none. It was never as strong as this as this offer. All right, good. You just so, you're, you're you're so ahead of me, Jamel. He's literally you're clearing up three of my questions already. So Fox <laughs> Sports flirted with you guys about a morning show that it might challenge uh, Mike and Mike, but you're saying at that point that it was just kind of the conversations that people have in the business no, never got to the point where they were talking to your agent about numbers or anything. 
No, I mean, I think they, you know, in those situations, it's kind of funny. It's, it's, it's just like, it's a little bit like NFL free agency, or I should say any free agency in professional sports, where the day that the free agency period opens, notice on that first day, everybody signed, <laughs> right? right? It's like, and the reason everybody signed is because they've been floating through channels that, hey, if you happen to be interested in us, once you actually can do some negotiating, then this is what we will be throwing on the table. And so, and as you know, CAA is a very powerful agency. So they have such a feel for what every, what the landscape is, what the salary bases are and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, word got back to them that it was, that they were interested. And, um, you know, whenever... A few times I ran into Jamie Horowitz, who was then obviously the president of Fox Sports at that point. Um, I ran into him, and he he would he would he would he would massage how he felt about it. Like you know, just if you guys are open, you know, just kind of tongue in cheek throwing it out of, out there. But we we knew he was serious, you know, that he really would have um, really entertained us being there. And so when the morning show idea came back. A big change in lifestyle, starting from scratch from with a brand new show. At that point, you know, FS1 was in its total infancy. Uh, it was a lot to consider. I I wanted out of Bristol. I mean, I, Mike and I were in different positions. We were always going to be as a package deal. You know, he had three kids who are much younger now than they are right in this moment. He'd been living in the New England area his for most of pretty much all of his adult life, if you will, it's where he met his wife, everything. So he had far bigger considerations. And this show would have been based in New York. And I, I just I think from a lifestyle standpoint, it, I could have maybe sucked it up. I didn't really have a great desire to live in New York, but I didn't want to really live in Bristol either. I thought there were some exhilarating ideas about starting a new show. But ultimately, the fit just would not have been there for us. Not at all. You you um you mentioned the book. You bought your mom with your sports center contract on her sixtieth birthday. You bought her a car. I did. I bought her a Mercedes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Cause yeah, that must have felt it, good. It did. You know, I mean, I guess I sort of got to have that moment that we see a lot of athletes uh, when they have it when they buy mom or mom and dad a brand new house or a brand new car. Because uh, just thinking about all the sacrifices that she made for me. Uh, the life that at different points she wasn't able to live because, you know, either addiction or other choices. And she deserved that uh, and much more for sure. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, a couple more ESPN things here real quick. You wrote in the book that you were briefly considered for the moderator role in first take. Before, uh, I'm sorry, I take that back. You were briefly considered for the moderator role. That eventually sort of was not really going to happen. But then you were in the running to become Skip Bayless's permanent debate partner before that job went to Stephen A. Smith, right? That is correct. And, um, you know, I, but I, I think self-awareness is, is an important trait to have, especially in TV. And it was very clear, I think, to most of us who were in the de debate rotation at the point 
that Stephen A was the perfect partner for him. I mean, when they were on TV together, there was a certain bombastic magic that happened and the audience response was always high. And while, you know, certainly the audience response was, you know, I felt like was pretty decent when I was on with Skip. It, that felt like who they, you know, ultimately what made the most sense for the show and for the partnership. They were longtime friends. So yeah, it, it made all the sense in the world, but I guess you can say to some degree, I was the runner up. <laughs> all right. Last one I want to ask you about is, and this was very much to my surprise, Jamel, that I made your book, not something I expected when I, when I hit page <laughs> one, one ninety or whatever. And so it's in relation to, um, an interview that I uh, that I had with you. Quite, quite frankly, I don't even remember this interview, uh, but you know, I'm, I, I'm sure it existed or it, or it took place, where I was talking about some of the issues that women face in sports broadcasting. And as you write, you sort of you say you made a throwaway comment about how physical appearance of women is always judged more harshly than men. That's absolutely true. Not a new development, as you say. And then you say, uh, open quote, I told Deitch something along the lines of nobody cares that Berman, this is in relation to Chris Berman, is balding on television, but as women age, we aren't given the same grace. I have female friends in the business who purposely don't discuss their age or avoid all questions about it, fearful that television executives will no longer view them as commodities. Um, can you then tell me in your own words what happened after you told me those comments in Sports Illustrated? So after I told you that, uh, Chris Berman that he read them, I mean, or they were somehow brought to his attention and he wasn't happy about them. And so, uh, he had, uh, he called me, um, at my, you know, called me at my, um, my office phone, called me at, you know, at ESPN. I wouldn't say office I had a cubicle. So uh, he had an office. I did not, <laughs> I was not a legacy member of ESPN, um, at, at any point, I guess. And so, yeah, so he called me and, he left a, a voicemail for me and I never listened to the voicemail because as soon as I saw it was him that called, cause I think it showed up on the caller ID. It showed up the missed calls. I was thinking to myself, this can't be anything good because let me just slightly backtrack. I had heard through the grapevine that he was not happy with those comments. And it was from, it was from some of the producers on NFL countdown. They told me that, that, you know, hey, Berman, you know, he's really not really happy about what you said. And I was like, I didn't think I said anything that was really negative. I was just pointing out what I thought to be obvious facts about, you know, the fact that nobody cares that Chris Berman is balding on television. I feel like the world can see he's he's thin. OK, like I didn't think it was that big of a deal. So um, so he yeah. So he called me and I was just like, this this probably is not good. And I was like, do I really want to even take this phone call or listen to this voicemail. So I had Mike listen to it. And Mike, I just saw his eyes just like get kind of big. And he was just like, yeah, you did the right thing. You don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't need to, to listen to this voicemail. So I, I was just like, okay, I'll just keep it and save it. And I was just going to let bygones be bygones. And like, maybe we all have a conversation when I run into him in person at some point, but it didn't end there. And he went to Marsha Keegan, who was then in charge of first take, our show, um, all the really the the debate commentary shows, those were pretty much, I think, under her purview. And he went to her and told her that I should be made to apologize to him, which I found to be ludicrous. And to involve upper management, involve my boss in what I would consider at worst was a bit of a personal dispute, if you will, that could be handled between the two of us before you go to upper management 
and have them using the fact that you're Chris Berman. Let's be honest. Like, that's a request that they're not uh, somebody else in the building that does not have the legacy status. They're not taking that request from him or even considering it. And then on the other side of that, for frankly, them to ask me to do it. I mean, I was just like, what is this? And so that's when I had to tell Marsha, I have a voicemail. You listen to it. And if after this, you think I should apologize, I will do that. Even though as I write in the book, I was never going to do that. I mean, I, that would have been my last day at ESPN if I had to apologize to him for that. And so um, she listened to it. And she told me she had someone else who was in HR listen to it. That was, I think, a bit of a confidant, a confidant of hers. It wasn't, she wasn't telling Chris, she wasn't telling HR on Chris Berman. So let me make that very clear. But it was just, I think, a relationship that she had with somebody in HR. And she was like, hey, what do you think about this voicemail? And so after that, after she listened to the voicemail, she called me back into her office and she apologized for even asking me to do that. And she said, you can consider the matter dropped. And so after that point, um, Chris Berman and I had an extremely frosty relationship. I mean, we, I wouldn't even say it's a relationship. We had no relationship. Like I, I didn't like the dude. I mean, I'll be quite honest. And so, um, it was, you know, very telling, I think about kind of how the hierarchy works at, at ESPN. And so, you know, I would see him every now. I just, I did I wouldn't speak to him. And when John Saunders was alive, he often tried to get, or a few times he mentioned to me like, Hey, you should really talk to Chris. And out of respect for John, I never told him what Chris Berman said to me. And I, because I didn't listen to the voicemail, I still had it, but I didn't listen to it. But I never really gave him the intricacies of everything. I said, listen, he tried to get me to apologize for something. I just, where I'm from, that just ain't cool. And so John understood that and, and he stopped pushing after a while. And so I don't, you know, cause I realized him and Chris were very close and I wasn't trying to get in the way with that, but like, that's your guy. You guys can still be, you're going to have your relationship. There is nothing that dictates I have a relationship with Chris Berman. So that's kind of where things were until John died. And that is when things thawed between Chris Berman and I. And, and certainly as I read about in the book, uh, when he lost his wife in a very tragic accident, I extended my condolences to them. And as far as I was concerned after those moments, John Saunders Memorial, um, what happened with Chris Berman's wife, uh, to me, all that, all the, the um, tension in our relationship was for me forgiven and forgotten. So that's kind of the long and short of it. I appreciate that. Two, two things. One, um, you, you, you never planned to listen to that. You obviously got Mike or, uh, and Marsha's Keegan's take on it, but you never, you know, you have no plans to listen to the recording. I don't, and yes, I still have it, <laughs> and I don't, that, I don't, I don't plan to listen to it. All right, that would have been my that's obviously my other question. Okay, wow. Well, I, listen, I appreciate being candid and uh, and telling that story. Uh, I don't think I think when people read that in the book, uh, at least those of us who uh, know about ESPN and have written about ESPN, et cetera, it's going to be a little uh, eye opening. All right, so I have three last ones for you uh, before um, before I let you go. And again, um, Jamel Hill's memoir is called Uphill. And it'll be available pretty much everywhere, wherever you get your books, uh, either online, Amazon types or in bookstores. And no doubt she's going to be doing a, uh, a pretty major uh, press tour, obviously, including this uh, small interview she's doing with, uh, with us. Um, you're really like one of the great people who can answer this, Jamel, in the world because of what you've sort of gone through at ESPN. But 
in the last month or so, Stephen A. Smith, because he has a podcast that now delves into politics, has been doing uh, the rounds, uh, particularly on the Fox News channel, talking about politics, uh, et cetera. Um, by the way, just so people know, I've mentioned this now a number of times, but it's a Cadence 13 podcast, so it's sort of part of this same podcast network that I'm a part of, though I obviously have nothing to do with Stephen A. Smith's show. Um, so he got permission from ESPN to do this, and ESPN's sort of reasoning was that uh, he has an interest in this, he's done this for a while, um, and we thought um, it was a fair request from him. We take these requests sort of, you know, each individual fashion, and we make our decisions then. The whole subtext is like, Let's face it, Stephen A. Smith has Jordan rules. He could do what he wants. I mean, that would be more honest like response to me, but I get it. They're not going to ever say that. Um, do you do you think Stephen A. Um, sort of delving into this is a singular thing for people like him or, you know, someone who really has power at that place, like who's a front-facing person like a Schefter or Wojnarowski? Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is there is no way, right, that if uh, Sports Center anchor X – went to ESPN management. It's like, you know what? I really want to go on serious POTUS today because I, I feel very strongly about the fact that Social Security could be cut in this country. They, you, do you believe in 2022 that person would have any shot of doing that or do you got to have do you got to have the kind of standing Stephen A does? Yeah, I mean, just from how I know the place operates, um, this is, to me, a Stephen A. Smith rule. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I'm sure other people are probably trying to use this as an example. Like if you if you're somebody else that's there and maybe you don't have quite the, the stature of Stephen A., but maybe you have enough stature uh, when your deal is up, you're going to be your agent is going to be looking at Stephen A. and say, oh, no, oh, wait, you let him do this. So there's going to be a lot of but but you let him do this, you know, and that's as you know, uh, Richard, that's kind of how ESPN works is that there's this. Um, you know, there's no one size rule that fits everybody. And that's sometimes where where the chaos happens is that they let certain people do certain things. They let other people not do those things. And then, you know, then your your next thing you know, your your respective, you know, representatives are kind of fighting it out with ESPN's management. It's just it's kind of Game of Thrones is in there to some degree. So I think this is very specific uh, to him. And, you know, I. I just would imagine, and I again, I have no inside knowledge of this. My guess is that I would not be surprised if some of the things that we now see him doing were things that maybe he, uh, his representation got as carve-outs in, in his last contract, that he would be able to pursue these other options. Because ultimately, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I mean, Stephen A. Smith right now, I mean, he's the face of ESPN. Unquestionably. I mean, other, yeah, unquestionably so, other than if you want to – that really has to do with how you'd look at it. If you think, like, football is the face of ESPN, then maybe it's Buck and Aikman. But the reality is there's no – there is no bigger front-facing talent who, who covers more of the brand than Stephen A. Smith. It's actually not even close. I, I, I completely agree. And so when you have that kind of leverage and you know they want to be in business with you, that's what allows you to ask for more things. All of us who were able to get to a certain level when we were at ESPN and some who are still there, you know, the things that you can ask for in your first contract versus when you get, you know, like the things that I got in my sports center contract versus what my first one or my second one and even my third one looked like decidedly different because <laughs> because they were paying me the type of money where I was going to be able to command certain things because they're looking at it as an investment. Like, okay, since we're investing this much money into her slash them, you know, with both of us, then 
we want to make sure that we get the full return on what we've done. So there were definitely things that I could do that changed. And I'm sure with him, that's the same. It's the same way. Now, this does it will be an interesting test example. Um, And the other thing I wonder, too, is that I think Stephen A is probably a little more conservative than people think. And because of that, I wonder if that is why they also feel comfortable doing this. I've said it many times before, and and I, I don't know, people either don't believe me or they continue to challenge me on it. ESPN is a conservative environment. Despite all this or what, I don't think they get it as much anymore, probably because, you know, I'm not there and some other pe- people aren't there anymore. But, you know, me, Lebertar, you know, Mike, you know, a lot of us, uh, you know, we're we're obviously not, not, in prominent positions on the network anymore, but ESPN generally has a conservative corporate culture. And uh, I think because Stephen A is a little more middle of the road and maybe a little right leaning, I think that also gives them the comfort to, you know, allow him to traffic in this other space. I'll say this. (laughs) I think we both know the answer to this, but do you think they'd let me do that if I were still there? Probably not. <laughs> the answer is Come never on, no. <laughs> like that would never happen. So, you, you no, know, I not. I mean, having the. I mean, for twofold. I'm not sure how many people they would let do it, but they would never. They would never have done that with you because they would have been so fearful about, um, you know, the response to 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 you doing stuff to you know you know whether it was Trump or whoever sort of calling out your appearances. So no, you would have had. No chance. And I will just say this, just so the listeners know, um, there are a lot of executives at ESPN who are conservative. I mean, I'm just being blunt with you. I'm not saying that the whole network is that, but I, I think people might be surprised. Maybe people wouldn't be surprised, but like, it's a lot of people who live in very wealthy Connecticut communities that 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 lean right, right of center. I mean, that's it's ESPN. You know, it's not a commune. People are not having sex in the middle of the grass in in Bristol, Connecticut, and and getting high. Like it's it's a business, and you have a lot of people who are conservative. There. Anyway, apologies for the filibuster. Jim. No, no, no. But I, I mean, I think yeah. When I say conservative culture, I, you know, I feel like executives set the culture for the most part. And so while Absolutely. while you may have individual anchors or producers that are more liberal. But ultimately, the people who concern for sure, yeah, the people who control the purse strings and just the general flow of the network, that is a very conservative culture. Yeah. And again, it's different. I mean, this isn't we're talking about the post skipper era as well. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right. uh, Final two things. Um, Where do you stand with sort of sports right now? just in terms of uh, writing about it or talking about it or broadcasting it? Like, do you want this to be uh, continually part of your professional life as you head forward, even though you have um, you have branched off into a lot of things that are, you know, far away from sports? As I mentioned, your podcast network that uh, is going to debut next month, uh, your work for The Atlantic, while you do cover the intersection of sports and race and politics and culture. You know, it's, it's not, you're not talking about the, 
uh, you know, the the Lions versus the Patriots or anything like that. So where do where do things stand for you in terms of like your interest heading forward in your life, uh, where sports plays a role in that? Well, unless it's something truly unique, you know, Michigan State football uh, goes to the national championship game. Notice I didn't say the college football playoff. We've already been there. Yeah, not, 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 yeah, not this year. Yeah, no, no, not, it's not going to happen this year. But if we, if we actually make the national championship and, uh, you know, it, it looks like we may win this, then, then I may, that, that might be a, a different sort of writing. You, you might see a game story out of me on that one, right? But, <laughs> but, um, I think my days of covering the nuts and bolts of sports, of the result-oriented sports, championships, best player debates, I think that day's done for me. Uh, that doesn't really – as I enjoy watching sports as much as I used to, and I actually enjoy watching it more because I'm not so – I'm not so embedded in how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, and so uh, that allows me to view it very differently. Um, but, uh, yeah, my days of covering it that way are done. The way that I cover it now and the way that I was covering it when I was writing for the Undefeated Now Anscape uh, in my last few months at ESPN, that's the way that I want to approach sports for as long as I can. Like, I'm never going to distance myself from sports. I'm never. I'm always going to have a foot in it. Uh, either by writing about it, maybe commentary, whatever it is, I'm always going to be uh, attached to it in some ways. But I think especially now at this critical joint uh, in our country, that sports is a great avenue in which we can explain what's happening in wider society, but also get people to listen differently than perhaps that we do now. As you know that uh, right now, everybody's dug into a position in this country. Um, there's not a lot of movement happening in, in terms of us being brought closer together. I mean, maybe in pockets, but not on a widespread scale. Sports is one of those things I think still possesses that ability to bring different people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, socioeconomic status, bring people together. And as long as that's the case, I'm going to always be interested in, in, you know, writing about producing, telling the stories of sports in ways that get people to critically think about issues that they think they're dug in on. You know, it's one of the many reasons, I guess, in my numerous projects that you listed at the top of this podcast, I'm executing, uh, I'm the executive producer on Colin Kaepernick's 30 for 30. Uh, that's directed by Spike Lee. And just it, just in sitting in um, different production se- sessions and interviews, and you know, I'm I'm so excited about this um, coming out with him getting the ability to finally tell his story his way, and people to to be able to look at his life and protest in full. And it's very much a reminder of why I got in this business and why I will always stay in this business and in sports in particular is for these kinds of stories and to be able to produce and be a part of these kind of moments. So that's what sports looks like for me now as just a tool uh, to be able to talk about bigger, broader issues in a context in which people might be more apt to listening. The last one for me is this. You know, one of the things that I think has been very clear, whether it's Lebertard or Dan Patrick, Colin Coward, you know, Bill Simmons, uh, and yourself now, all, all these people are examples of this, is like you've you've learned sort of the power of ownership. Like when you own your own content, when you have people under you, when you hire people. And that obviously would have never happened had, you know, you continue to stay at 
ESPN most likely, you know, they had a long sports center run or a long run as a, you know, a pundit or whatever. But, um, as you look at your sort of yourself now, there must be, I don't know, it must, it must feel really liberating to be able to have the, the power to create your own content and to hire people, um, who you want to hire. And I don't, I think you would agree with me on this, right? That, that would have never happened unless you left ESPN. That just wouldn't have been your path. No, the, the stage in my career, um, this stage that I'm in right now, usually I have some, some sense of anticipation about what's coming next. Not necessarily with a specific job, but with a specific season. This was a season I never anticipated. I never thought entrepreneurship would be the season because like most journalists can't really do math. (laughs) It's not really a strong suit of mine. And just, you know, running a, a, a business, or in my case, multiple businesses, was just never something I had on the bingo card. You know, as as journalists, you're kind of used to operating as a singular entity. You know, you go out, you get your story, you talk to your sources. Like, you're kind of a one-woman or one-man machine in in terms of how you produce content for the, for the most part. It can be a very individual, uh, you know, a, a very individual pursuit of being in this business. And so now that I have people who work for me, whose, you know, lives are depending on, on me. Um, it's, it's different and it's a great challenge and it's forced me to, um, you know, kind of is forced me into some uncomfortable zones that I'm not used to being in, particularly as it relates to, to management and, and leadership. And so as always, I, I embrace growth and the growth can't come unless there is some, uh, discomfort, you know, because I'll be the first to admit, like, I, I don't always know what I'm do- doing, and I tell my team this, and so I'm I'm not above criticism, I'm not above being corrected, none of those things, uh, but I do really love the fact, the priceless part about what I do now is that when I want to do something, there's only one email to be sent, and that's from me to the person asking me if I want to do it. There's no email chains. There's no I got to ask so-and-so. There's no I got to get permission here. None of that. And when that was eliminated from my life, even though now it feels like I segued from having one job, you know, being a sports center anchor into 22 different jobs, I'm happy about it because it's much less stress for me (laughs) to not have to deal with the permission aspect um, of our jobs because – you know, I have friends across the industry, not just in sports, but in news, politics. And all these places are kind of the same. There's a Norby everywhere. Okay. And you could take that however you want to take that. There's, there's the, the, these, they, they exist everywhere. There's a Norby everywhere. And, you know, I, I don't mean this negatively. There's a Jimmy Pataro. Like the system's the same pretty much everywhere. So wherever it is you go, what you hope for when you go through the door is that you can be enough of yourself so that you don't lose yourself. And that was, you know, when CNN plus when that, that folded, that was something that they understood when they brought Carrie and I on is that we're going to be us. This is what us looks like. We're not going to have a whole lot of conversations about you can't do this. And can you not? Otherwise you're better off moving on to somebody else because I, I promise you, as I said before, after my experience in 2017 at ESPN, I will never put myself in that position again. And I mean that. And so um, the autonomy and the freedom and the creative input that I have are worth any minor headaches that come along with 
entrepreneurship and, and owning your own businesses. Jamel Hill is a contributing writer for The Atlantic. She is the host of Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify, creator and host of a new podcast network coming in November called The Unbothered Network. And she has been here to discuss her memoir. It's called Uphill Colon a Memoir. Check it out wherever you get your books, online, in bookstores. You'll be seeing a lot of Jamel for sure um, as the book uh, debuts. Uh, October 25th. That is, is that the exact date of the that book? That is correct. Debut? Okay. All right, you'll be getting a lot of Jamel Hill then from October 25th <laughs> to whatever, November 15th or something like that. Listen, Jamel, you, uh, you're very gracious to give me more than an hour. Um, I could have gone much longer. I, I always appreciate your candor and transparency, and I have known you a long time now, and, and that was the same from day one, and it's the same uh, today. I wish you the best of luck with the memoir, and thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. I just have to work on something else that'll get me back on for another repeat appearance. <laughs> All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Jamel Hill for giving me the time that she did. Her memoir debuts this week, so uh, that should be everywhere, and I imagine she will be everywhere as well, doing a lot of interviews. If um, you want to uh, head to the archives, you will likely find some sports media conversations that will interest you. podcast before this was Where ESPN Stands in 2022, a podcast with author James Andrew Miller had uh, Chad Finn come on to talk about the impact of Al Michaels criticizing Dan Snyder during an NFL broadcast, and also Meredith Shiner on her new podcast, which explores the intersection of sports and American Jewish culture. Before that, Bob Costas, um, which was a really, really interesting interview. You can go down the list of the archives. We've had some interesting guests over the last uh, couple of months, um, including conversations on the coverage of Red Farm in Mississippi's welfare scandal uh done a lot of stuff on um, on amazon and its debut and again if you like these conversations please leave us a five-star review and a nice note happy to uh read that stuff uh, on the air if uh if you leave us one of those in uh your twitter handle or some kind of id I want to thank patrick antonetti for all his hard work thanks to everybody at cadence 13 for their support And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.